This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook download of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. I've been fortunate enough to meet the author of this week's recommendation in person. Dave Barry is, to my mind, one of the funniest men who has ever lived. And Dave Barry Does Japan is definitely the best book about Japan ever written by someone who knew nothing about it before getting off the plane. It's funny, it's insightful, and the chapter on Hiroshima is quite possibly one of the most moving things I've ever read. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast. Episode 77, Hidden by the Leaves. This week, we're going to discuss one of the most influential works of Edo period Japan that almost no one during the Edo period actually read. It's time to talk about Hagakure. Now, we've dealt with this book in passing in previous episodes, both the ones on the Edo period and the one on Bushido. Still, this book is influential enough that it's worth considering in its own right. Hagakure is a series of anecdotes written by Yamamoto Tsunetomo, a samurai from Saga Domain. Sometimes, by the way, Saga Domain is called Hizen Domain, a name it takes from the older Ritsuryo province system set up during the Taika reforms. We're just going to call it Saga Domain here for consistency, and because the former Saga Domain is now more or less modern Saga Prefecture, making it nice and easy to find on a map. If for some reason you're not a map person, Saga is a bit north of Nagasaki on the island of Kyushu. Yamamoto Tsunetomo was born on June 11, 1659 in Saga Domain. The master of the domain at that time was Nabeshima Mitsushige, who at the time of Yamamoto's birth was only 27 years old. Yamamoto was born during the first real generation of peace in the Edo period. The generation before his had dealt with the master Shimabara rebellion in 1638. Some of Saga's own population rebelled, and Saga's forces were directly involved in suppressing the rebellion. As a result, Yamamoto's generation was the first one to face an entirely new way of life for the samurai class. Deprived of wars, the samurai had to find themselves a way to be useful during peace. Yamamoto's personal solution was to find solace in expressions of loyalty. He would be as unswerving in service to his lord Nabishima Mitsushige as he could. In fact, the passion expressed by Yamamoto for Nabeshima has led some to suggest that the two may have had some form of homosexual relationship. This certainly would not have been unusual during the Edo period, as male-male love, particularly between samurai, was not frowned upon and indeed was seen by some as a purer expression of positive emotions than heterosexual romance was. In this, I suppose there's a great deal of common ground with some of the more martial societies in European history, 
such as the Spartans of ancient Greece. That being said, we can't be sure exactly what kind of relationship Yamamoto and Nabeshima had, but whatever kind of relationship it was, Yamamoto's service was apparently well appreciated, because he held high office throughout the life of Mitsushige. All good things come to an end, though, and in 1700, Mitsushige took ill and died. Now, this left Yamamoto in a bit of a bind. Keep in mind that his personal code emphasized absolute loyalty. The tradition of the samurai class was for absolutely loyal retainers to engage in a practice called junshi, to commit suicide after the death of their lords. Now, it's true that in the Sengoku period, some samurai did do this, but it's up to you how cynical you want to be in interpreting that. Either they were the most loyal servants of a defeated or dead lord, or they were the ones so closely identified with his regime that they knew that whoever replaced him, they were probably not going to survive the transition. Certainly no more than a few samurai practiced this tradition during the Sengoku period, as most of them could simply jump ship over to a new lord. During the Edo period, however, that was not possible, and at any rate during this longer era of peace, the idea that the chief virtue of a samurai was loyalty was gaining ever more credence. Junshi was in fact becoming so common that it was becoming a bit of a political issue. For example, after the death of the third shogun, Tokugawa Iemitsu, 13 of his closest advisors, including two members of the Roju, his senior council, killed themselves. So much senior Tokugawa leadership was lost that it dramatically changed the balance of power in the Tokugawa government. As a result, Iemitsu's successor Ietsuna issued a revised edition of the Buke Shohato, the laws for military families, the fundamental law which governed the conduct of samurai, in 1663. It outlawed Junshi. Since all daimyo were required to swear obedience to the Buke Shohato, in effect, Junshi became illegal on a national scale. Nabeshima Mitsushige himself had already outlawed the practice, being a bit of a progressive. So, while Yamamoto Tsunetomo wanted to commit Junshi, he could not. Both his lord and the Bakufu had declared it illegal and improper. Instead, Yamamoto attempted to serve the new daimyo, Nabeshima Tsunetomo, but that didn't really work out. The details are not really clear, but eventually Yamamoto gave up his job and his position in the government and retreated into the countryside as a hermit. This is an old Confucian tradition. Wise men, or at least people who think of themselves as wise men, are supposed to give up governing and retreat into the countryside if their advice is repeatedly ignored. Like I said, we don't have exact sources on what it was that drove Yamamoto out of the government, but personally I have this mental image of Yamamoto just being incredibly insufferable and saying things like, well, Mitsushige would have done it this way, but I guess we could try it your way, until he was just thrown out of the administration. But that's just me. Regardless of why he retreated into the mountainside, after a few years, Yamamoto was visited by a young samurai of Saga Domain named Tsuramoto Tashiro. Tashiro, having heard of this man who was loyal to a fault, had come to Yamamoto to learn from him. Yamamoto began talking to the boy and spent the next few years lecturing him. The anecdotes, the lectures, the stories he told to Tachiro were what became the work he's best known for, Hagakure. 
So what is Hagakure all about? Well, why don't we let Yamamoto himself tell us? From the second paragraph of the book, quote, The way of the samurai is found in death. A bit further on, quote, We all want to live, and in large part we make our logic according to what we like. But not having attained our aim and continuing to live is cowardice. This is a thin, dangerous line. To die without gaining one's aim is a dog's death and fanaticism, but there is no shame in this. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. If by setting one's heart right every morning and every evening, one is able to live as though his body was already dead, he attains freedom in the way. His whole life will be without blame and he will succeed in his calling. Later in the work, Yamamoto defines courage as such, quote, Young men should discipline themselves rigorously in intention and courage. This will be accomplished only if courage is fixed in one's heart. If one's sword is broken, he will strike with his hands. If his hands are cut off, he will press the enemy down with his shoulders. If his shoulders are cut away, he will bite through ten or fifteen enemy necks with his teeth. Courage is such a thing. He even goes on in the book to disparage the idea of studying tactics and strategy, saying that, quote, learning things such as military tactics is useless if one does not strike out by simply closing his eyes and rushing into the enemy, even if it is only one step, he will be of no use. He also says that military tactics are worthless for those of great strength. Of course, all of this is rendered a bit strange because one of the examples he gives of a great warrior is Nabishima Naoshige, who had been daimyo of Saga at the time of the Battle of Sekigahara, and who had behaved with an absolutely ridiculous concern for his own life and titles by switching sides during the battle and joining Tokugawa Ieyasu. I always found that contradiction kind of funny, though I suppose Yamamoto Tsunetomo would just tell me I'm thinking too much. Essentially, the philosophy of Hagakure revolves around the embrace of death. Samurai should always act without a thought to either success or self-preservation, moving in the quickest way to fulfill a perceived sense of duty, even when doing so means risking death or failure, or both. That sense of duty is in turn based on almost slavish devotion to the Lord. A samurai is universally obligated to offer up anything and everything up to and including his life to his lord without question or hesitation. Some have gone so far as to describe Yamamoto's view of the samurai's devotion to his lord as almost romantic. It's commonly cited as evidence in favor of the idea that he had some kind of, shall we say, intimate relationship with his own lord. It has even been suggested that that's where the name Hagakure comes from. What's hidden by the leaves, which is what Hagakure means, is the samurai's own secret and closely held devotion to his lord. Honestly, it just makes me think of a bad high school anime where the younger student is trying so desperately to get the cool older senpai to notice him or her. Maybe there's an anthropology paper on that somewhere, but anyway, I digress. Remember, this is the man who criticized the 47 Ronin not for breaking the laws of Japan, but for doing things like waiting or planning because they thought if they just launched their vendetta immediately, they'd fail. And of course, they were right, they probably would have failed, and Yamamoto would have said that was the correct thing to do. So where is this philosophy coming from? Is this guy just crazy? Well, there have been a few different suggestions of what Hagakure is all about, but the general consensus, at least among historians I've spoken to on the topic, 
is that the Hagakure is an attempt to redefine samurai values in an age when the old values were not really sufficient. Yamamoto Tsunetomo's life was essentially smack dab in the middle of the grand shift, from the samurai as the great warrior to the samurai as the lifetime bureaucrat, who just occasionally swings a sword around to pretend that he still can. All of this meant that the old value system of the Sengoku period was no longer really sufficient. Hagakure is a definition of new values for the new age. All of a sudden, the concern of the samurai is no longer, will my lord recognize and respect my valor on the battlefield, but how can I demonstrate my loyalty in the most profound way, even if my lord does not recognize it? A few people, most notably a scholar named Eiko Ikegami, have taken this a bit further. The Taming of the Samurai, a book authored by Ikegami, argued that all of this amounted to what we in the West would recognize as an ethic of individuality. That a samurai's worth was inherent, as determined by the way in which they chose to serve their lord, rather than defined by others. It wasn't dependent on others recognizing them as worthy. All of this is getting into some kind of complicated philosophy, and if you're interested in the ideology of samurai honor culture, then Taming of the Samurai is an absolute must-read. But that's the short version. So in essence, the entire message of Hagakure can be summed up in one line. A man exists for a generation, but his name lasts to the end of time. So, speaking of names, what happened to Yamamoto's? Well, not much. After his death, which finally came, of natural causes, in 1719, Hagakure was more or less forgotten. Some samurai in Saga Domain did read it, and it ended up slapdab in the middle of the Tokugawa literary spectrum. It wasn't banned by any measure, but it wasn't considered to be an orthodox or correct view of samurai behavior. Specifically, a lack of concern for upholding the law, as well as a single-minded focus on service above all else, chafed against a Neo-Confucian ideology promoted by the state, which did have values in it other than loyalty, values like ritual, propriety, and personal benevolence. As a result, Neo-Confucian thinkers on the nature of Bushido, most notably a man named Yamagasoko, who was the teacher of the leader of the 47 Ronin, tended to be more popular during the Edo period. Yamaga thought that the goal of Bushido was not to provide blind loyalty onto death, but to act as a moral example of upright living to the people around you, much in the same way a traditional Confucian gentleman is supposed to. This proved to have a bit more resonance with the average samurai's experience, so it became the more orthodox view during the Edo period. Yamamoto, meanwhile, languished in ignominy for much of the Edo period. The Meiji period did not treat him much better with the leading thinkers of the day, attacking more or less every aspect of traditional Japanese culture as outmoded and worthless in the face of a powerful West. There was no greater symbol of this outmoded worthlessness than the cult of death that surrounded the samurai. Indeed, the only group of Edo or early Meiji thinkers who could have been said to follow the ideas of Hagakure were the hardest of the hardline Sonojoi believers, the ones who wanted to honor the emperor and expel the barbarian, regardless of the cost. Most of those people ended up fairly dead pretty early in the process, after discovering that honoring the emperor does not protect you from artillery rounds. After that, they were more or less a political non-entity. So it was not until the 20th century, the latter part of the Meiji period, that the Hagakure was rediscovered, so to speak. 
Starting right around the turn of the century, a renewed interest in traditional Japanese culture began to appear in Meiji thinking. This was sparked really by the triumphs of modern Japan, particularly defeating China in the First Sino-Japanese War. Clearly, Japanese culture was not as behind as everyone seemed to think, since in the space of only 25 years, it had become strong enough to take on the Chinese empire that had once dominated East Asia. All of a sudden, the outmoded and martial values of the samurai were not so outmoded anymore. Rather than being relics of a barbaric past, they were the essence of what it meant to be Japanese, and in particular a Japanese warrior. Or at least, that was the view promoted by the Imperial Japanese Army, which led the charge in reviving Hagakure, and promoting the idea that now all Japanese were samurai in the service of their emperor, with a responsibility to seek out glorious deaths on his behalf. As historian of pre-modern Japan Carl Friday notes, quote, Early modern figures who wrote about the idea of a code of conduct for samurai probably would have rolled over in their graves when they heard this. One of the few things that all of these men had in common was their interest in defining and defending the essence of what set the samurai apart from all other classes. They were describing, or prescribing, a code of conduct for an elite, and they were arguing that it was adherence to this code of conduct and the values on which it was based that separated this elite class of warriors from the rabble of townsmen and peasants behind them. The idea that Bushido values were simply Japanese values would have appalled them. All of that's true, of course, but it's not like historical accuracy has ever stopped people from appropriating ideas as they see fit. Hagakure in this new formulation was the essence of what it meant to be a soldier, and tales of the Russo-Japanese War, the First World War, and Japan's war in China are littered with examples of glorious soldiers who died honorably on the battlefield like the samurai of old. Now, this kind of death cult stuff is not purely Japanese, to be sure. Many of the nations of the West had a similarly romantic view of warfare, and one need only look at French propaganda about the glorious fighting spirit of the Gallic peoples, or at the incredibly overdramatic hero tales authored by Theodore Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge in the U.S., to see that the romanticism of dying in war was a common theme in the culture of the 19th and 20th centuries. Those other countries, however, had that thinking beaten out of them by the carnage of the First World War, the Philippine Insurrection, and the like. The Japanese would have to wait until World War II for it to happen to them. The crowning moment for the cult of Hagakure in the Imperial Army was the adoption of the Senjin-kun, the Code of Conduct for Japanese Soldiers on the Battlefields of the Pacific War, in 1941. It contained several sections laying out the value of embracing death, and stated flatly that death was preferable to dishonor. It also embraced the notion that it was far better to simply charge into battle than to deal with overcomplicated tactics that would just bog everything down. In other words, it was basically the Hagakure of the modern age. Now, how totally these ideas were embraced by the average foot soldier is a matter of some debate. We'll be getting into this more in a separate episode, but the short version is that while it's true that some garrisons and divisions fought to the bitter end, others surrendered surprisingly quickly. The modern spirit of Hagakure was, it seems, not embraced entirely evenly. Still, it's beyond a doubt that at least some Japanese soldiers who died during the Second World War died because they had been inculcated with these ideas. 
After defeat, the legacy of Hagakure became a bit more complex. Now it was tarnished by association with the excesses and worse, the failures of Imperial Japan. Instead of being emblematic of a sense of national unity through a shared code of valor and death, it became emblematic of the foolishness of a government which believed that something as ephemeral as warrior spirit could stand up to the might of juggernauts like the United States. Still, loyalty is a value that never really goes out of style, and the book still has defenders to this day. They point to its emphasis on the crucial value of loyalty, regardless of what you personally get out of it, and that is an admirable thing, I suppose. Still, in the end, I am one of those intellectual types, and I can't really get too excited about a philosophy built around the idea that it's better to act without consideration than to think. Besides, it's not like Yamamoto Tsunetomo was the only person who ever wrote on this subject. There were plenty of other writers on the subject of Bushido during the Edo period. In particular, I'm very partial to Yamaga Soko, who I think presents a much more balanced picture, and whose philosophy both predates and contains most of what's considered noble in Hagakure, while losing most of the creepy stuff. In the end, for me, the legacy of Hagakure will always be the tremendous body count of Japan's modern wars. A body count that I personally find all the more horrific because so many of the soldiers sent to fight and die were around the same age as the majority of the students I teach now. While I'm always glad to see people interested in Japanese history, I have to admit that I wonder sometimes whether there really is anything of value to salvage from Hagakure. Still, its legacy is important, and that alone made it worthy of our consideration here today. That's all for this week. Special thanks this week to Lawrence Copeland, Kevin Corpy, and Camden Bassett for donating to support the show. To join them, or to learn more about this episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the life and times of the greatest thinker of Meiji Japan, Fukuzawa Yukichi. (laughs) ¶¶